Sounds good. Open up, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. And as we're getting into that, I'm just going to make a disclaimer, a statement on the front end. I literally have been, in a sense, dreading uh, getting to this chapter because this chapter is so chock full of huge boulders. I mean, we've got him, the whole thing about the Sabbath and the, the teaching on the Sabbath. Then you've got the Beatitudes, which is eight sermons by itself. And you've got the appointing of the 12, and you've got the build my, your house upon the rock. And, you know, I mean, this is a huge chapter, and I've not known from the beginning when we chose Luke, this particular chapter, how are we going to get this? So here's the Sunday, um, but, uh, but that's okay. I do just want to say, if it is a little on the longer side, it's just, here's the situation. The nature of what we're doing with a study of Luke is... This is not topical. We're wanting to follow the life and teachings of Jesus. And so we don't want to skip over, but neither do we want to, you know, unnecessarily. We're not going to do three Sundays, which we could easily, on Luke chapter 6. Um, so that would just be ridiculous because we've got 24 chapters to get through here. So, um, so we want to kind of do justice and in, in plow in to what uh, the Lord is 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 saying here and what what and, and learn from him um, but i do having said that very much feel that the lord as he always does because he's building the church he, it's not just about doing a bible study this isn't just like you know to study on the book of luke and how important that is god's speaking to us and here is what all of luke chapter six if you can boil it down into one common theme is following jesus and the reality of what that means. My prayer is this, that these words and this study would result in Border City Church following Jesus, not like what we've been used to that looking like, but what it was always intended to be from the beginning, what it really looks like to follow Jesus, that we would be a church patterned after him and his kingdom, not after church as we've known it. I wanna ask that you would join me and hearing these words, afresh and anew, not because we've all read the Beatitudes. I knew the Beatitudes as a, as a young tyke, as a Catholic. Not to hear the Beatitudes again, once again, but to hear the reality of what Jesus is teaching us this morning. And what he teaches his disciples. Alright, so here's uh, five points that we're going to be kind of extracting out of Luke chapter 6 and then we're going to read the chapter in its entirety and then we're going to touch on each of these five points. The first is this, you, I, I, you don't, if, you, if you can't keep up with me, that's okay. We're going to hit on each of these in, 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 uh, a little bit slower in just a minute. But number one, following Jesus is following a person, not a policy. Following Jesus is following a person, not a policy. Number two, following Jesus is living a life that will not make earthly sense. It won't. Number three, following Jesus is serving people that you or who you wouldn't want to serve. Is it who or that? Following, serving people whom you wouldn't want to serve. I wrote serving people you wouldn't want to serve. Let's just keep it there. Fourthly, following Jesus is seeking to help others rather than correct them. 
seeking to help others rather than correct them. And then lastly, fifthly, following Jesus is obeying Jesus. In other words, actually following Jesus. Jesus is alive, by the way. I know we're all church people and, you know, we, we, you know, we, can, we can drip that off of our tongue. Jesus is alive. Praise God. Hallelujah. Okay, sorry. Just make, making fun of us church people a little bit. <laughs> we all know Jesus is alive, but I just want to remind us that when we talk about following Jesus, we're not talking about following the words of a teacher who is dead and gone now. We're talking about following someone who dwells inside of us and is alive. Yeah. You and I are spirit beings. We're soul, spirit, body. We have a spirit. Jesus has a spirit. His spirit, which is the essence of life, is inside of us. And he still speaks. He still leads. That is what it means to follow Jesus. There is no difference following Jesus today versus following Jesus 2,000 years ago. The only difference is that his spirit dwelt in a body that you could see. Now it dwells inside of you and me, which is actually still a body that you can see. It's, we are his body. I hope that makes sense. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read it all. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain. That'll be important later. And ate, rubbing them in their uh, hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and he took and ate the showbread and also gave uh, to some of those who were with him, which is not lawful for any of the priests to eat. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse six. And now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught and a man there whose right hand, a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And then Jesus said, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as, as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Following God and seeing the works, the benevolent kindness of God operating in another person's life would fill them with rage mm -hmm. because it doesn't happen in the box of what they expected God to do and to look like and what they thought God wanted. Verse 12, now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the, mountain and, uh, to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot, um, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Verse 17. And, it came down, and, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. 
And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Verse 20, Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are men, are you, excuse me, when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for, my, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, listen to that. I don't just say, I say to you who hear. Do we hear? I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you speak and hope to receive back, excuse me, and lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Verse 37, judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be just like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Verse 43, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose 
The stream beat vehemently against that house, and it could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing. Isn't that interesting? It's not just about doing nothing, it's hearing. People who heard Jesus and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So we're going to look at these five ideas, these points, these concepts, these truths, shall I say, of what it is to actually follow Jesus because this chapter is all about the reality of what it is to follow Jesus. And can I remind us, my friends, that the church that Jesus is building, what we are supposed to be a part of, is not just measured by American and Western success, that we would be able to say, look at us, look at this church, look at this stuff, or me as a Christian, look at how much good that I've done, look at all this, all this, whatever it may be. The church that Jesus is building is the restoration of heaven on earth. The likeness of God, as Rodney prayed at the end of the worship time, the likeness of Jesus himself being manifested through the earth. He arose into heaven, Ephesians 4 says, and he gave gifts to men. He gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, dot, 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 until we all come to the unity of the faith, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus. The only way that the church will do that, not just do church as we've known it, because we can get mighty good at doing church. We can talk the talk, we can do the stuff, but do that manifest Christ, heaven, the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. The only way that that will happen is a church who has died to self and has become what the scripture says, slaves to righteousness, following Jesus wherever he goes. That is what we're called to. There is no greater calling than that. And in essence, can I say this morning, Whatever that may mean, whatever that looks like, that is worth it. Now, many in the church, we want to say, well, you know, God is so good. And what that means is that circumstances are always so good. Nonsense. Nonsense. That is not the truth of the scripture, which we're about to see. So number one, following Jesus is following a person, not a policy. If I can go back to those first two verses. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples. I hate to sound like a churchy pastor person, but can you say with me, disciples. disciples. These aren't just people. They're not just random people. These are disciples. What's a disciple? Somebody who has seen who Jesus is and because of that made a decision to leave everything to follow him. That's what a disciple is. By the way, the disciples in that day literally did that. That wasn't just like, I leave all to follow you. No, they literally left everything in order to follow him. Because he has a physical body, and to keep up with his physical body, they had to leave their lives behind. That was the reality of what it meant to be a Christian. We have diluted that term, Christian. I don't even like to use the word Christian. I would rather say follower of Jesus. That's, That's the reality of what Christianity is supposed to be. And here we have in these two verses, in this kind of opening story here, adherence to the written word of God, correcting those who are following the living word. Just to take note of that picture, the Pharisees who were, who were adherence, dogged adherence to the written word of God, the, 
the idea of what God had said in the, in the, in the Scriptures. And here when the living Word, the one who embodied that very Scripture in flesh form manifested, they rejected Him and they began to correct those who were following Him. Following Jesus is about following a person, not a policy. Jesus himself said the Sabbath was made for man, not for God. And it's like if I was to give uh, instructions to, to, sorry for the sermon illustration, boys, but you're, you're sons of a pastor. It just happens. <laughs> if I was to give uh, instructions to these guys to, to clean their rooms, but I wasn't like physically there with them, and so all I could do is just like write them a letter. And so clean your room. And because I'm not going to assume that you know what that means, I'm going to itemize the things. You need to like put the trash away. You need to pick up all the stuff that's off the floor and put it where somewhere where it belongs. And you need to, you know, make your bed, right? And so they like take this and they're like they're get you know they and so they they take the trash and they put put the bag up and they put it on the desk, and then they pick up all the clothes and the homework pieces of paper and the toys or whatever and they. Put that, and they put that on top of maybe like a bookshelf or something. And so, I mean, we've, we've fulfilled the letter of the law, but no clue what I meant, because that looks like a pigsty still. It's just you've rearranged your junk, yeah. right? And so this is the idea. God gave in the Old Covenant a law, and he gave specific instructions because he didn't want to assume that we would know how to do that law. But behind that law was a heartbeat, a purpose, a desire. And in the new covenant, because the law cannot give us the heartbeat, the purpose, and the desire, in the new covenant, we receive the spirit that gives us a revelation of the, of the why. God, in the same way that I don't really care how you get your, your room clean, I just want it to look clean. You know what I'm saying? It, it, but, they, but in the example I just gave, they could have missed the purpose, but done the specific Thing. You follow what I'm saying? Following Jesus is following a person, not a policy. And there is a whole lot of policy in modern day church. And we need to get back to the voice of the shepherd and trusting in nothing else. Can I mess with us a little bit here? We are free, not all, free. Some of you are going to be very uncomfortable with what I'm about to say. We are free of the law. We are free of every ordinance or uh, tradition of man. And the church is full of traditions of men. And we, like robots, Christian robots, do the traditions of men. We, and we, in fact, are free of it all. Now, I want, you to, I want you to consider, I said it all. The heinous stuff that you find sinful, we're free. However, we're not free in, if, the, if the gospel has truly become a revelation to us. We're not free to just do whatever we want. We no longer serve God by any form of law or rule or regulation, but following Jesus. That is what God is looking for. Paul said this in Colossians chapter 2, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. It's having, that was against us, which was contrary to us, and having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Everything that could condemn us, both the traditions of men that men put upon us and church culture puts upon us and the law itself, the good, holy, righteous law of God, taken out of the way. God says, I don't want you to follow a law. I want you to follow my son. Now, following the son is going to require death to your flesh, let me tell you. It's going to be a walk of faith. I'm not saying that this is easier in that sense, even though his yoke is easy. I'm saying we, we are in control when we're following a policy. Jesus is in control when we follow him. So let us free ourselves from anything that does not come from following Jesus. Take it off. Remove it. And let us free all the other people in the earth from the same. That we would never be found condemning, modifying, controlling other people because they don't conform. Let's point people to Jesus, not what we expect a Jesus follower to do. You hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's no accountability in the body of Christ, but we'll get to that later. Number two, following Jesus is living a life that will not make earthly sense. And he even goes specifically into the domains that that would include. It won't make financial sense. That's not for some of us who are called to take financial leaps. That's for following Jesus. It will not make financial sense. Full stop. It will not make Material sense. It will, it will not make emotional sense. And it will not make social sense. Following Jesus is living a life that doesn't make sense. And here's the thing. Because what we're about to hear, it's going to sound horrible. But God is good. The end of the story with Jesus is always redemption. Always resurrection after death. But there's no redemption. There's no redemption without death. Okay, so death to self. Let's look at this. Um, I want to actually read verses 17 through 26 again. And he came down with them, that's speaking of the apostles, and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples. Remember how I had you say that word? Disciples. What are disciples? Disciples are those who have seen who Jesus is and as a consequence, have left all to follow him. In today's term, we would say Christian. Although what, as I said earlier, Christian has come to mean you go to church or you've made a confession about certain ideas about Jesus. And in 2,000 years ago, in the truth of Jesus, a disciple means somebody who has left everything to follow him, right? So he came and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. So notice that there are two groups here. Am I right? There's a, there's a crowd of his disciples. And then there are other people who are, sh- are showing up that there's a multitude of people. They're also showing up. Which suggests to me that just because you're of the group of people that are listening to Jesus on a particular day doesn't make you a disciple. Would you agree? Okay, so we've got a distinction here, which is important in understanding the ministry of Jesus, is that he had a ministry to the disciples, and he had a ministry to the multitudes, those who weren't yet following him. 
I'm not going to go into that. That's for another day. They were from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Why am I focusing on this distinction between disciples and, and, and just the general multitudes? Because what we're talking about today is following Jesus. And his ministry to the disciples is what we're looking at today. So verse 18, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. And then he lifted his up, his eyes up towards his disciples. Is he talking to the multitudes of people right now? He's talking to his disciples. What does he say to those who have left everything to follow him? Blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did also to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich." For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when men speak, all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And so following Jesus is living a life that won't make earthly sense. I want to look at this, these four kind of areas, financial, material, emotional, and social, Jesus says, blessed are you poor. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, when he, see, he speaks the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that concept isn't financial poverty. It's, it's poverty of spirit. In other words, you, for whatever reason, you are in a place where you understand your own need. And that word poor means like a pauper, a beggar, somebody who is is in need and in, in, in asking, seeking help, poor in spirit. And so we like to talk about that, that, that you know, the, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And we talk about how that's anybody who's poor in spirit. But in Matthew chapter, I mean, Luke chapter six, where this isn't the Sermon on the Mount, many would call this the Sermon on the, on the Plain. And I, it's a lot of the same content. Was it the same time? I think it was, he was repeating the same material, but this time he was on a It doesn't matter. Just, in this context, he doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor. You poor. Get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> now, this is dangerous, but it's not dangerous. Blessed are you poor. What does the word poor mean? I always said pauper. It means destitute of wealth. Nobody wants this. In fact, all of the things that he says, blessed are you, dot, 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 it's the opposite of what we want. It is basic human instinct to try to seek out financial security and even abundance. It's basic human instinct to, to not want to weep, but to rather find joy in life. It's basic human instinct to want to find acceptance and social acceptance and not be rejected in life. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you in the opposite. Some people would say Jesus was preaching an upside down kingdom. This man right here would say, well, it's actually a right side up kingdom. The point is nobody would want poverty, but the reality of following Jesus is that you are going to go into times 
where you do not know how you're going to make ends meet. In following him, you're going to make decisions in obedience to Jesus where you're going to be like, what do I do now? And you're going to say, I got here because of obedience. It's not because of like a bad financial move. I obeyed the Lord. Where are you, Lord? And Jesus says, because all of this is, is for his name's sake, as a result of following him, if you find yourself in poverty, a place where you don't have enough. And I've said over and over, 2018, in fact, 2017, 2019, we didn't have enough. I mean, and, and, and it's not like we're going to, it's not like it ends there. Like there are going to be many moments probably where we are, are going to find ourselves in financial situations where we don't have enough. Why would Jesus say you're blessed? Because you're brought to a place where you're dependent upon him. And the promise is yours isn't the wealth of the world. Yours is the kingdom, which includes all the provision that you need. He's going to come through and provide for you, but not at a place to make you comfortable for you to learn his faithfulness, for you to learn his trustworthiness, for you to live in a dimension of faith. And can I remind us in such simple terms, Jesus evidently was not rich. I mean, I know there have been some preachers who have tried to say, oh, that donkey he was riding into Jerusalem at the end, that was a, a high-class donkey. That was the Mercedes-Benz of his... And this is theological junk. Jesus didn't have a home, and there is no clear indication of how in the world he was even being provided for himself, other than in the book of Luke, it talks about a few women who were su- supplying for him and all of his apostles. That's all we know. That is not comfort, my friends. Blessed are you poor. Again, not poor in spirit, poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. If we find ourselves in the course of following Jesus, temporarily in moments where we don't have enough, Jesus says blessed because you're in a place where you are dependent upon him and you will see his provision as you follow him. Uh, but it, but it's, it's, it comes through a place where you become more like him in the process of trusting him. He says, blessed are you who hunger now. So this isn't financial, this is now material. Uh, I know we think of hunger as like physical hunger. Some of you are going to start feeling that in about an hour. <laughs> Some of you, like, <laughs> maybe now. Blessed are you who are hunger now. And we think of hunger as just like the, the belly, but the actual word here actually just means to suffer need, to crave, to eagerly desire. And so I want to ask us, what, what is it that perhaps we suffer need of in our life right now? Because again, all the stuff that we want, and we can even argue that we need, we don't necessarily always have it in our possession as we follow Jesus. And, and can I remind us also, who wants to suffer need? Right? Nobody wants this. Nobody wants this, any of the other things that Jesus is talking about. In 1997, after I became a Christian, at the end of my freshman year of college, I was um, following Jesus. I had just joined, like, become a part of a biblical kind of church community. And I get a call. I'm in in my dorm room. I get a call from my mom. And and she says, uh, the... Uh, the, the, high, the traffic ticket that you got for speeding last year, before you were following Jesus, um, yeah, 
I won't, I won't talk about the, the other issues surrounding that particular day when I got that speeding ticket, but I was going 78 and a 55. And um, she says, our policy, our uh, insurance policy has escalated with you on the policy. We're taking your car away and we're taking you off the policy. And uh, as a freshman in college, there are words that come up that I won't repeat here that you want to say. And, uh, and I remember in that moment, I was just struck because I was so in tune with God, you know, just seeking God. And I, I just was like, immediately, I was like, I'm going to trust God. And so I just respond with calmness. And I remember my mom was like, she going to like get married. When does the yelling start? And uh, I trusted God. What happened as a result of that? I didn't have a car when I went home for that summer, which was an extended summer because they were um, just, trust me, it was an extra long summer. Uh, I didn't have a car, which meant I couldn't go to all the parties and the hangouts with my old high school friends. So all I did was I went to Domino's Pizza where I was working, uh, and I came home and I studied the scripture, and I prayed, and I fasted, and I prayed, and I sang to the Lord, and I sought the Lord, and I grew more over that summer than perhaps any other time in my life. But it started with hungering after something material, with wanting something. And even Border City Church, we, we, we're in need right now of a venue. And it certainly is not coming into our hands, you know. One would think we're so faithful to God, we're trusting, we're seeking, we're praying. Surely God's going to make it easy. Here we are three months later. It's like, God, how long? Blessed are you who hunger now because God's doing a work in you. We don't like it. We instinctively want to find and take matters into our own control to find the opposite, where we're not craving. You follow Jesus, you're going to follow into a crave that is uncomfortable. He says, blessed are you who weep now. How many of you like living in moments of weeping? Hands up. That's what I thought. Nobody wants this. I talk often about October of 2018. Literally, literally weeping. I can remember doing prospecting as a real estate agent. And like, I, I don't even know how we're going to get through this week financially. And here I just spent this whole hour, hour and a half doing stuff to meet leads. And I didn't even get one lead. And I'm driving with, back home with my tail between my legs. I'm, and, and, and I couldn't help it. Like tears just coming down my face. And I'm like, I have moved my family across the earth to inner city Detroit with nothing in it for me, for you. And here's what I get for it, right? This is real. I wasn't, I, I wasn't mad right. at him. I, I mean, I could have been. I'm just, I'm just saying I wasn't. But that's the reality that's going through. Like, I'm following you, and I am living in poverty. And I'm weeping. And there were times when the kids would go off to school, and Minda and I would be sitting in our chairs, and all, we, we literally just sank. Just... <laughs> she would find me on the floor. <laughs> she took a picture of me on the floor and sent it to our friends back in South Africa. Say, guys, you need to pray. Like this is so. So what I'm saying is, following Jesus, you will come into places where you're you're pushed to your limits sometimes emotionally, where it's not about joy. And the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And if I can. Just to let you know, there, were, there was a joy in my spirit, even in those days, that I was able to tap into. But every single day was a reminder of circumstances that would press my emotions 
right back down. It was a fight daily, right? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And the reality in following Jesus is that before resurrection, there is a Gethsemane. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Gethsemane is the, the garden where he prayed the night before his crucifixion. There is a Gethsemane before every moment of resurrection. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There is joy around the corner. I don't want you to not hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you're condemned to a life of doom and gloom for the rest. No, Jesus is wonderful and he leads you uh, next to still waters and, and, he, and he spreads a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He's good. But you also walk through the valley of the shadow of death yeah. and you fear no evil because he is with you there. And then uh, finally, he says, or not finally, he says, yeah, finally, he says, blessed are you when all men hate you and they separate you, they exclude you, they revile you, rejoice. This is a social reality. And I want us to grab a hold of this. None of us want this. And if you do, you're kind of not right. Like, you need to see a therapist if you actually want to be rejected. High school, high school friends. Last time I was with my best friend from high school. He came over to my house. This was in that summer that I spoke of. And uh, I'm talking to him about what God's done in my heart. And he's like, okay, this is weird, but whatever. Then we go out because he wants to smoke a cigarette. And we go down to the uh, Mexican restaurant. And we're standing in the parking lot. We're 19 years old. A group, a, a car drives by with two uh, teenage girls in it. And they see us. And they, they call after us, pull up next to us, and start flirting with us and invite us to a party. This is the dream for a 19-year-old boy, right? This is, it does not get better than this. My friend is sitting next to me thinking, this is the best thing that could happen on our Friday night. And out of my mouth goes, I don't think I can go. Why? Because I don't do the stuff at that party because I follow Jesus. My friend was like... <laughs> And there was a moment later that night where I said some more stuff about Jesus, right or wrong. I'm not even, I don't even know if I handled that well or, or what. I don't know. But I remember him saying, I'm through with this. He stood up, walked up to my bedroom, and left me to go to sleep. And that was the end of that relationship. I've never had a, that was my best friend. Never really had a relationship with him since. So what I'm, what I'm saying, I'm, I'm not saying we certainly don't look for rejection. I believe that we should mix well with the world. Yeah. What I'm saying is truly following Jesus is going to cause people to not get you, to think weird thoughts about you, to reject you. To, it's, you enter into a strange social space where what used to be normal in the world, where you just kind of made friends normally, it doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah. You're of another kingdom and you're sent into this world as an ambassador, and your life doesn't make sense. People are going to think strange of you, but they're also going to be oddly interested in you. It's just the reality. What does Jesus say about this? Rejoice, rejoice in that day. Can we hear that this morning? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because I'm rejected and hated and reviled? Yes. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. When you enter into this thing of following Jesus, you're entering into a stream, a lineage, a link of people who have been hearing the voice of the Spirit of God and obeying in spite of the earthly cost. 
and you're entering into a history of people whose reward may not always be great in earth, but it is great in heaven. It's great in terms of what ultimately and eternally matters most. It is a privilege. And if we want to fulfill God's call together for us, this is what we must embrace. This thing is going to have a financial reality that doesn't make sense if we want to see Jesus' purpose done in our lives. It's going to have a material, it's going to have an emotional, and it's going to have a social reality. And it's almost like I would like to draw a line in the sand today and say, guys, let's understand that and just embrace it and realize that we're blessed as we give everything up to follow him, regardless of what the cost. Why? Because he's with us. Even when we don't see the circumstances looking like he's, he is still with us, he will still be good to us, but he's working out his plan, not ours. Thank you. <laughs> the deeper our following of Jesus, the deeper our pursuit is of a heavenly reward rather than an earthly reward. It be, the heavenly reward becomes more and more real and more and more important than any comfort in this earth. And then I just want to touch on these other things, if I could say them, because they're so important. Number three, serving people you wouldn't want to serve. Following Jesus is serving people you wouldn't want to serve. Luke 6.35, love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Love, if I could just say it this way, love only moves outward. Love is a force that only moves, moves from you or from, this, from its origin outward with no need of anything coming back. That's what love is. For God so loved the world that he gave. And he didn't just give, you know, like a couple bucks and go to checkers. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Love is outward. And it's not thinking of what, what you get in it. It's only giving. And that's why Jesus is saying, love your enemies in that empty seat that we heard of last Sunday with uh, Steve Martell, that empty seat, remember the empty seat represents an opportunity. Fill the empty seat. That's love. That's love. It's not, it's not motivated to build our church, or church growth or whatever. It's for them and them alone. It's not anything about what it has to do for me. And the minute it does, it's going to skew our fulfillment of the Great Commission. Love, it's, love is the source. Love your enemies. And so it's not even just the Great Commission. I want you to be thinking about your office. I want you to be thinking about the people in your community. I want you to think about your neighborhood. I want you to think about your real life. Who are your enemies? Who are those people that rub you the wrong way? Who are those people that you don't like? Do we withhold love from those and just kind of really prefer people who are good back to us? Because Jesus is saying he, God is, is, is uh, what is he? <laughs> Kind to the unthankful and evil. So I just want to encourage us to tap into that outward, outward force of love and to live a life where we're seeking to give at every moment in every sphere of our lives. We're seeking to give. We're not necessarily investing in people. You don't disciple people who are not hungry. You follow what I'm saying? We don't take people under our wing who aren't reciprocating. But we give to everybody without thought of how they respond because it's the nature of God. 
And it's his kindness that moves people to repentance. Following Jesus, number four, is trying to help others rather than correct them. If you skip down to verse 37 with me, judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And then he's interestingly says, verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put in your bosom for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That 38th verse right there, for some reason, especially in charismatic church, has become the key offering scripture. Give and it shall be given back to you. Press down, shaken together, running over. But Jesus isn't really talking about taking up an offering here. He's talking about judging people. He's talking about judging people. And if you don't believe me, this scripture is sandwiched between comments about not judging and then other comments about trying to have influence and leadership and assuming a place of spiritual superiority to lead other people. And he says, can the blind lead the blind? And, and that whole thing. It's all about taking this kind of superior, critiquing other people posture, which is sick. And it's pharisaical. And it's the very thing that's going to turn the world off. Judge not. Our role is not to be judging others. What's the antidote to judging others? To seek to give. Seek giving. But they're wrong. Yep. So are you. (laughs) And wouldn't you want other people to give to you even though there are all sorts of errors and things that are wrong in you? I've got a wife. I'm reminded regularly of all the things that aren't helpful for her that, and I'm like, Minda, I'm trying to work on this thing, but I mean, it's just like in my nature. Yeah. And I need, I need grace because I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect yet. I'm becoming perfect, but I'm not perfect yet. But on the journey, I need grace. I need to be loved on the journey. Judge not. Instead, give. Give. And Jesus adds, give, and it's going to be given to you. Good measure, press down, running over. It's all about measure. If, you spend, if, you, if you're investing in judging others, you're going to be more strictly judged. So rather give. Rather give. Seek other people's benevolence uh, or bene- uh, others' welfare. Um, if we would seek to give rather than to judge, our ability to help remove the speck in our brother's eye would then be humbled and purified so that we could actually help and it would come from a place of giving, not moral superiority. So let's lay down the notion of correcting others because you're not called to it. I know some of us may think that we have a ministry of correction. You don't. I'm not saying that there's no place for correction in the body of Christ but it comes from a place of seeking to help. Lay down the notion of correcting others and pick up the mandate to get to rather give to others. And then lastly, and so well done guys that you've followed me this long and through Luke, Luke chapter six, lastly, following Jesus is obeying, which in other words would mean actually following. So just a, a comment to lead us into that. Good fruit in your life comes from your heart, not just just your actions. Verse, excuse me, verse 45, it says, A good man 
out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Where does good treasure come from? Out of your what? Heart, right? Good fruit comes from the heart. So the question then is, how do we get our heart right that we as the people of Jesus would be bearing good fruit? How do we make our heart right? The answer is the very thing that we've been talking about this whole time. Our heart is purified as we hear and obey Jesus. That is, some of you know what I mean. You've got your righteousness, but you've got those things that you have done in obedience to Jesus, and you know what came through your life was not your own righteousness. It, it came from the Lord himself because you heard him, you were taught by him, and you acted on that. And that is him imparting something of his heart into our heart. That is the good heart. Hearing and obeying him. Where do we get that? Verse 46, the very next verse. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Tyron shared with us a couple weeks ago in a meeting where after COVID, Christians were gathering together in, in masses and the worship was explosive. And there was like this feeling of like tapping into the heavenly worship and he's like just looking around the room, loving this thing. And in that moment, he felt the Lord say to him this very scripture, that these people are calling me Lord, Lord, but they're not doing what I say. And how many of us can call him Lord, Lord? Did you know Lord is not his name? It's his function. Stan Abbott. Lord is not his name. Lord is his function. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say, but whoever comes to me, number one, hears my sayings, number two, and does them, number three, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man who builds his house on a foundational rock, that when the winds come and the, the rains blow, <laughs> when the rains come and the winds blow, uh, that, that house stands. And the opposite is also true for not hearing. The antidote to man's problem, and we're going to wrap it up here, but the antidote to man's problem, because all of this is ultimately following Jesus, but the antidote to man's problem is not going to church. Am I saying that going to church is, is not good? But that in and of itself doesn't solve the problem. It's not going to church. It's not being a Christian. It's not reading the Bible. It's not praying. The antidote to man's problem, according to verse 47, is coming to Jesus, hearing his sayings, and doing them. That we would be a church, that you and I would be true Christians who actually follow Jesus.